This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for May 29th, 2020. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week, staff writer Jennifer Cousin Frankel talks about a rare inflammatory response in children that has appeared in a number of coronavirus hotspots. Then we have researcher Julian Dowdswell. He talks with producer Megan Cantwell about tracing the retreat of Antarctica's glaciers by looking at the ocean floor. Finally, Kiki Sanford interviews Danny Dorling about his new book, Slow Down the end of the great acceleration, and why it's good for the planet, the economy, and our lives. Now we have staff writer Jennifer Cousin Frankel. She wrote this week about an inflammatory condition that's shown up in kids in coronavirus hotspots. It's rare, and it seems to be treatable, but researchers are really racing to find out more about this. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, thanks for having me. I think up front and probably at the end, too, we should give people a little bit of reassurance here. I know when I saw some of the headlines starting to pop on this topic about kids seeing symptoms that were kind of scary, I was like, okay, things are getting even worse, but it's really pretty rare. Yeah, there are two things to remember about this. First of all, we don't know exactly how common it is, but it does appear to be really quite rare. And the other thing to remember is that it seems to be really pretty treatable. There are some children who have died um, or who have needed really, you know, intensive care in hospitals, but most of these kids get treatment and they get better. To give us a sense of scale, can you talk about how the numbers of these inflammatory response cases, how those stack up against, against coronavirus cases in general? So let's take New York State, because that's obviously has been very hard hit. My understanding is there are about 350-ish thousand confirmed cases in New York State. And then we have about 157 cases of this inflammatory condition being investigated. So even if we're missing some of the cases in children, even if there are more still to come, that gives you a sense Mm -hmm, of the the rarity of this relative to COVID-19 in that region generally. What do you see as the hallmark features of this inflammatory response? So the symptoms that have been 
highlighted so far are fever, often for several days, abdominal pain, vomiting, diarrhea, a rash, feeling really tired, difficulty breathing, certain scarier symptoms, severe abdominal pain, those sort of symptoms. Uh, We talk about this as an inflammatory condition, or they say it's Kawasaki-like. What what exactly does that mean from the perspective of the symptoms that, that people are seeing in children? We're hedging a little bit because as with so much around this pandemic, there's a lot we don't know. This illness does appear to resemble another condition called Kawasaki disease, which has been around, you know, a very long time. That's a rare condition that is thought to arise in a small number of children after they are infected by some sort of pathogen, like a virus of some sort. And most of the kids will get better and then some will develop Kawasaki disease, which is essentially an inflammatory condition and it affects in particular medium-sized blood vessels, can cause heart problems and other symptoms like rashes and fevers. Mm -hmm. So the symptoms of this do appear to resemble Kawasaki disease now, but we don't know for sure or there is debate over whether this is actually Kawasaki disease or is it something different. So we called it Kawasaki-like illness and other people are are calling it multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children as another mouthful of a name. How do we know that it is coronavirus associated? Not every kid that has this inflammatory response is testing positive for infection. The circumstantial evidence is pretty strong, and there are a couple strands of evidence we can point to. So the first is that we are seeing clusters of this illness in places that have had a lot of cases of Mm COVID-19. So for example, Northern Italy saw a cluster, New York, which, you know, New York City has been the world's biggest cluster of COVID-19 cases and is now, from what we know, the world's biggest cluster of this, this inflammatory condition. Not every kid is tested positive for coronavirus, but some of them have antibodies to coronavirus. So they've had the infection in the past. Is that right? Yes. So that's another really clear clue that this is connected to COVID-19. On the one hand, it's showing up in hot spots where we have a lot of COVID-19 cases. And if something is rare, you're going to see more of it where we have a lot of infections. And then the other is the antibodies. Not every single kid has had detectable antibodies, but many of them have. And it's also important to remember that some of them do test positive for the virus, but I would say it's a minority. Now, there are two reasons why that could be happening. One is there is a lag time and it's possible that they got the virus they cleared the virus. But as that process went on, they were initiating this immune response, which really blew up several weeks later. Mm -hmm. Another possibility is that the virus is hiding elsewhere in their body. In general, the diagnostic tests for the virus are with nasal swabs. You might not have it in your nose anymore, but you might have it elsewhere in your body. And there is an effort to look for the virus elsewhere in kids as well. Well, let's dive into the research. What kinds of research are being done to better understand why this is affecting kids, which kids, and all all those kinds of things? Yeah, so researchers have a lot of questions that they want to answer and are working to answer. One is really to understand why some kids are getting this. Most kids with COVID-19, from everything we know, have very mild cases. And so why do we have this small subset who develop this illness? And so to do that, 
their efforts to do genome sequencing on the children who have been impacted and potentially on their parents as well in cases where the virus is able to be detected in them we would want to sequence the virus because mm-hmm. maybe there's something about the variant of virus that these kids are getting that has an effect. We don't know, but that certainly makes sense. Mm-hmm. We want to look at really the immunology of these patients. Is there something different about their immune cells, how they react to pathogens? Just trying to kind of do this deep dive into their biology and what's going on here. While most of these kids really respond very well to treatment, it would also still be very useful to know if you have a kid, two kids with a fever, with COVID-19, is either of them at risk of developing this? And is there a way to intervene even earlier? Mm -hmm. So if we can kind of predict who's at higher risk, that could be really very helpful. One of the things that, you know, we've been reassured by is that there's so few cases. There's so few of these worldwide, right? Yes. And it's only in these super hotspots. How can we do research? This is such a small sample size. Well, it's a small sample size, but I would say in general, pediatric research tends to be pretty coordinated. So, you know, a lot of kids who get sick and are treated in a hospital are often treated in a major children's hospital. Mm -hmm. And those centers are often very accustomed to doing research. They're accustomed to working with each other and collaborating because, again, thankfully, illness in kids is pretty rare. And there's an effort, I think, to really collaborate and work together. That's what we've seen so far. I mean, I think in different countries across Europe, there are really efforts to pool the cases, which we have to do because with the possible exception of New York, hospitals are not seeing hundreds of these kids um, Mm -hmm. in days, thankfully. So even though some might see a spike, you know, they might see a dozen kids over a few days, which is a lot for them. But like you say, with research, you really need a lot of patients. Another mystery here is about Kawasaki disease too. It's much more common in children of Asian descent, but that is not what we're seeing here with this coronavirus-associated inflammatory response. Kawasaki disease in general is, I think, about 10 to 20 times more common in children of Asian descent. And Asian countries, which were hit first by COVID-19, haven't reported this. It's really been reported in European countries and Canada and the U.S. You know, why is that? There are a couple different theories. One theory is that this is really rare. So you're really going to see it in the places that are hardest hit. And while Asian countries were hit first, they didn't necessarily have the caseloads that some of the hotspots like Northern Italy or New York City did. So they just didn't see it. Yet another theory is that it, you know, maybe something about the virus. There was one study that suggested that the variant of the virus in New York City came from Europe. So maybe there are differences in the variant of the virus that Mm -hmm. heighten risk to this. There's some skepticism to that theory. We don't really know. Mm -hmm. There could be something in genetics of the kids that could explain it. You know, we're not really sure, but it's true that it's not being seen disproportionately by any means in kids of of Asian ancestry. The question is that you have about this coronavirus-associated inflammatory response. Aren't there very similar ones for Kawasaki? Do we know the answers to these questions about uh, genetics, you know, the mechanism, any of that stuff? Do we know the answers to those questions for Kawasaki? Yes and no. We have some information about Kawasaki, including some gene variants that seem to raise the risk. But I do think the research that's going on now into this Kawasaki-like illness in kids linked to the new coronavirus 
could also shed light on Kawasaki disease. And there's certainly a lot more interest now in probing this. You know, Kawasaki is a rare disease. It's not like there are that many people who research it. And now we suddenly have a lot of people coming in to try and learn more. And that could have helpful effects for Kawasaki disease generally. Could this also feed into our understanding of some of the immune issues that come up in adults that have a severe version of the coronavirus infection? Definitely. So that's something researchers are really interested in. Last week, there were some cases reported of this inflammatory condition in young adults, actually, people in Mm -hmm. their 20s. So there's a question of, you know, is this affecting at least young adults as well as kids? And we've seen it certainly in teenagers as well. And then, like you say, yes, there are older adults with COVID-19 who develop this really out of control immune reaction, which can be fatal or can be, you know, quite devastating. And I don't think researchers think it's exactly the same as what they're seeing in kids, but it does have that same thread of an overactive immune response. And There is definitely interest in, first of all, really trying to look at the kids and understand the immunity there. Mm -hmm. And will that teach us something about the adults? That's piece one. And the other piece is, are we missing cases of this in adults? Like, has this happened in older adults? And we just didn't see it. And so there, there is some effort to now go back and look at records of cases in adults and, you know, stored blood samples and things like that and figure out if we've missed this inflammatory reaction in adults. Okay. Before we go, I just want to, you know, remind everyone that this is super rare. And I also found it reassuring that the symptoms are not, are not quiet. You're going to notice this if, if your kid is sick with it. They're not hidden symptoms. Your child is not feeling good and feels sick. And this is treatable in most cases. And I think a lot of people have in general been fearful of going to the emergency room for anything and have avoided it these days. And, you know, I get that. I felt the same way. But I think what doctors are saying, every doctor I spoke to wants to make sure that, you know, if your kid has had a fever for several days, is just not feeling right and has symptoms of, say, abdominal pain or vomiting or rash, to get them to a doctor or to contact your doctor. And that's important because I think early treatment is a good thing here. All right. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you. Jennifer Cousin Frankel is a staff writer for science based in Philadelphia. You can find a link to her story and all of our coronavirus coverage at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for an interview with Julian Dowdswell about looking at the ocean floor to keep track of glaciers. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. I'm Megan Cantwell, and I'm here with Julian Dowdswell. He and his colleagues published a paper in Science this week looking into how fast ice sheets retreated in Antarctica thousands of years ago and what this could mean for the future. Thank you so much for joining me, Julian. A pleasure. I just want to start with establishing where exactly your study area is. It's the Larsen Continental Shelf, and that's located off the western Weddell Sea in Antarctica. Why did you specifically choose this location to look into? 
The Western Weddell Sea is important for several reasons. One is because the Weddell Sea is one of the principal areas where what we call dense bottom water is generated by the production of sea ice. And that dense bottom water is one of the drivers of the global ocean circulation. And the second one is because on the eastern side of the Antarctic Peninsula, at the western edge of the Weddell Sea, there are a number of ice shelves called the Larsen Ice Shelf. And the most northerly parts of the Larsen Ice Shelf, Larsen A and Larsen B, have collapsed catastrophically in 1998 and 2002. And therefore, the Larsen Ice Shelf system is seen to be one of the very sensitive areas of Antarctica. And of course, the significance of ice shelves. Ice shelves are the floating portion of huge basins which drain much of the interior of the Antarctic ice sheet. So if you lose a big ice shelf, arguably a large drainage basin could decant more ice into the global ocean and therefore provide an additional increment to sea level change, to sea level rise. When you're looking at current ice sheet retreat, is it mainly from these events where the ice shelf will collapse or is there also more of like a steady retreat as well? Ice sheet retreat around Antarctica, and the same is true as in Greenland, has shown both what one might loosely call catastrophic retreat over the last 20 years, happening over just a month or two, and also the slower retreat of certain systems through thinning. So part of this might be viewed as natural change of a system where you lose mass through the production of icebergs, which equals a retreat of the margin. The margin then grows forward for a series of decades, and then another large iceberg is produced, much as A68, the huge 150-kilometre-long iceberg, carved a couple of years ago from the Larsen Sea. And there are some areas where the retreat appears to be very rapid, catastrophic, and arguably may not build back in the medium-term future. Satellite data is the main way that you're observing this retreat within the past few decades, but in order to see thousands of years into the past, you had to use a different approach. Could you talk about how you use landforms on the seafloor to illuminate where the ice sheet previously was? Yes, the great thing about the geological record, in this case, we're talking principally about landforms formed in the sedimentary seafloor by the past action of the bed of ice sheets eroding, deforming those sediments, is that they can take us back rather than only the few decades of uh, satellite observations. These can take us back to the last glacial maximum when ice sheets last advanced to the shelf edge over large areas of Antarctica about 20,000 years ago. So the record of submarine landforms on the seafloor produced by glaciers tends to represent the last, let's say, 12 to 18,000 years. And we were able on the Weddell Sea Expedition 2019 to have access to two autonomous underwater vehicles and to be able to put on those vehicles multi-beam echo sounders that send out a fan shape of beams that measure the elevation of the seafloor, not only under the vehicle, but in a fan shape of between 150 and 200 beams, which allows a whole swathe of the seafloor to be imaged at once. And if, as we did, the vehicle goes up and down, one can actually then look at the morphology, look at the shape of the seafloor both over quite large areas and at very high resolution. When you were able to take a close look at the seafloor, you found these ridges, and in the paper you describe them as ladder and rung topography. 
How big were these ridges? There are actually all sorts of shapes on the seafloor. The particular ridges, and we call them ladder and rung topography in the paper, partly because the ladders are larger ridges in the direction of past ice flow. And the rungs are the little, what we call retreat moraines in between them. And the ladders are typically two to four metres high, hundreds of metres long and spaced roughly 50 to a couple of hundred metres apart. And those are orientated almost parallel to the past ice flow direction. And then the rungs parallel to the ice front or orthogonal to past ice flow are typically only half a metre high and spaced very roughly in our observations about 20 to 25 metres apart. So these are very, very fine scale features. In fact, in the paper, we call them delicate features, very difficult to observe from a ship. It seems surprising that these landforms have been preserved for this long period of time. One of the things about the seafloor below the base of storm waves, which is a few tens of metres, is that unless you've got strong currents or submarine landslides or very high sedimentation rates, which might bury pre-existing sediments, it's actually quite a low energy, quiet environment. And we find in many areas of the high latitudes that glacial landforms produced roughly 15 12,000 years ago, are really almost perfectly preserved on the seafloor. It seems surprising that these landforms have been preserved for this long period of time. One of the things about the seafloor in water of significant depth, that is below the base of storm waves, which is a few tens of metres, is that unless you've got strong currents or submarine landslides or very high sedimentation rates, which might bury pre-existing sediments, it's actually quite a low energy, quiet environment. And we find in many areas of the high latitudes that glacial landforms produced during the last stages of ice retreat, roughly 15 12,000 years ago, are really almost perfectly preserved on the seafloor because it's a low energy environment. After you use this autonomous underwater vehicle to scan these landforms, how did you determine what the rate of retreat was from this data? The rungs, which are the transverse to flow ridges, are spaced 20 to 25 metres apart. And our interpretation of those is that the actual point at which the ice changes from flowing over the seabed itself to becoming disconnected from the seabed and therefore beginning to float. We call that the grounding line. Every time the tide goes out, the grounding zone goes up very slightly and unloads a specific area of the seafloor. And then the next low tide, there's a small impression made actually at the grounding line. So each time the ice touches down and makes an impression during a low tide feature, that produces one of these little, just half metre high ridges. And then because at this point the ice is retreating, the next time the tide goes up and then down again, the ridge from the previous cycle is preserved and a new one is formed 20 to 25 metres further back. And the same thing happens on the next tide. How many of these ladders and rungs did you find in the area? We found up to 90 of these in an almost perfectly geometric pattern over a large area of the seafloor, an area of about nine square kilometres on the Larsen continental shelf. If we have one of these formed every tidal cycle, which is just over 12 hours, we can say that the retreat rate would have been 20 to 25 multiplied by two in a day, which is 50 metres a day. And that average over a whole year is 
more than 10 kilometers, nearer to 20 kilometers. But we think that because there's a lot of sea ice in the winter, conservatively, we could halve that number. And that means that the retreat rate is more likely to be about 10 kilometers per year. And this, of course, is a very high retreat rate compared with what we observe today through satellite systems. What is the comparison between what kind of fast retreat rates you're seeing now versus what you found in your study? What we're seeing in the modern record is a retreat of about a kilometre per year, whereas our data from the geological record suggests that the retreat can be 10 kilometres per year or perhaps even greater. What, therefore, we are showing is that the maximum rates of retreat of the grounding line that we're observing today are not the observational maximum Mm -hmm. rates of retreat and that ice sheet systems are capable as demonstrated through our data in the geological record of retreating much faster than this. What is the next step with this research? Are there other areas that you want to observe? One of the studies that's going on is to try and look at systems similar to this, actually beneath Pyland and Thwaites Glacier, which are much bigger systems than the Larsen system. But of course, it's more difficult to get autonomous vehicles underneath the floating ice shelf in those settings. We would also like to go back and do more of this work around the Weddell Sea. In fact, one of our objectives during the Weddell Sea expedition 2019 was to make these sorts of very high resolution, close to the seafloor measurements of morphology, not only on the shelf, which was deglaciated maybe 10, 14,000 years ago, but also beneath the floating ice shelves. But logistically, it's very difficult to do. This wasn't the initial area you were trying to look at in the study? Not this exact area, no. And so it's an absolutely classic example of where you've got to have a plan A, a plan B, and sometimes a plan C in polar science because it's so difficult to access these areas due to the unpredictability of the sea ice cover in particular. What were you hoping to answer with the plan A? Plan A would have been go underneath the floating ice shelf itself, but the conditions were too difficult for us to risk the vehicle under the ice shelf. If you went under the ice shelf, you also would have seen this retreat that you observed from this other area? It depends how quickly the system has responded over the past few hundred years. We don't know. But the point is, I think, that the seafloor landform signature that we've identified here is a signature of very rapid retreat that would be applicable whether a system is 10,000, 1,000, 100, or just a few years old. Some pretty awesome data came from that Plan B then. Indeed it did. And sometimes in science, things work out and sometimes they don't. We thought this was a good target, but it's a target from thousands of years ago. And I think it's given us a slightly different perspective on the system than we would have got by going underneath the ice shelf. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Julian. Thank you. A great pleasure. Julian Dowdstell is the director of the Scott Polar Research Institute and professor at the University of Cambridge. To find a link to his research, visit sciencemag.org slash podcasts. Stick around for our book segment up next. This month, we feature Danny Dorling and his book, Slow Down, The End of the Great Acceleration and Why It's Good for the Planet, the Economy, and Our Lives. Welcome to the book segment of the Science Podcast. I'm Dr. Kiki Sanford. Life has changed dramatically over the past several weeks as a result of COVID-19. For many, now spending more time at home, it may even seem slower, less hectic. In his latest book, Slow Down, 
the end of the Great Acceleration, and why it's good for the planet, the economy, and our lives, Danny Dorling, the Halford Mackinder Professor of Geography at the University of Oxford, argues that this slowing has actually been underway since the 1970s. In your book, Slow Down, The End of the Great Acceleration, you start with a chapter on worry. And throughout the book, there are lots of references to fear, anxiety, and worry. Can you talk about why that is such a major theme for your book? Uh, It might say quite a lot about me, although I don't think I've done it much in other books. I think it's because I didn't mean the book to be about slowdown. The book was supposed to be about change in general and what what could we tell about patterns of change. And the problem was that almost all the things I measured, it turned out they were slowing down. And we tend to think of slowdown as bad. We tend to worry about it. We tend to think of progress and moving forward as good. And I think that partly led to me talking about worry so much. But also, if you like, one reason why we could worry less than we do is because we are a worrying species. So I was trying to kind of give a sense that one reason for looking at rates of change and in what direction are things heading is to take part in that collective worry, but also to help address it. So it's more proactive worry than destructive? I think I put to be human is to worry imaginatively. Because you can worry badly and you, or you can worry well. You know, we're not the only creature that worries. You can see other creatures in fear and so on. But we're really, really good at coming up with scenarios. I, I did a, a, another book a few years ago where I had 42 ways in which people thought the world would end. And by the time it came to the proofs of the book, there were another couple. So I had to put 44 in. <laughs> Everything from killer bees to coral bleaching to nuclear Armageddon. We're really good at it. And we have been for quite some time. It's just that our past worries about the end of the world tended to be more religious, whereas now they're more scientific. In a couple of chapters of your book, you reference other scientists thinkers who have worried and written their own books on the eventual predicted futures that they saw, whether it was continued acceleration or continued population growth, especially the population bomb by the Ehrlichs. Do you think that your book is different from these other predictions of the future that have come from the past? It's different from the ones that say that things will go terribly wrong. I I could find you a series of time series of, of soils being washed away and so on that would create a terrible future. You know, but I wasn't setting out to do that. I wasn't setting out to do something optimistic. I honestly wanted to know in what direction are many things going, partly because we've got to the point now where we think we've got a pretty good idea in what direction our own numbers as a species are going. We think we've got tighter and tighter on it. And then I thought, well, what about GDP? What about debt? What about other trends or things that matter? One thing I try and do in this book is step back, step back in time, step back away from the picture and look at the collective of many inventions, many things happening. And it stops you worrying too much about individual events, individual people. It looks much more like a kind of process that's going on and a process which I think is slowing down from the peak of change recently for our species. For, for population growth, it was 1968. Things like innovation, it may be about 100 years ago, shortly after the tractor began to spread around the world. But those kind of changes were enormous. You discussed the slowdown in data collection and collective knowledge using Wikipedia as an example. But what about the apparent growth of data with projects like the Large Hadron Collider and big data projects? 
I've looked at many claims made by data journalists about the speed and the rise in data. And then it gets a bit depressing when you look at what it's actually used for, because the majority is personal, it's selfies, it's videos, it's trash, and it's almost always duplicates. So we like to talk about the kind of data in science, because it sounds better than what we are actually filling up the world's cloud servers with, which is, which is kind of rubbish. I did look at the amount of information available on any, every individual in the world. And I think that has got up to 8 billion pieces of information on each of 8 billion people as we approach that on average, which is just ridiculous because there are not 8 billion things to know about me. You know, even if you had my whole genome, it's not that interesting. But there's a terrible kind of old fashioned nuss in this book, which is fixed with me. I'm 52 years old. I did my PhD on data visualization in the 80s at the point when the supercomputers were no longer being used to simulate nuclear bombs and they had to find something else to do. And I can remember just managing to squeeze my PhD and all the material onto 250 floppy disks, each of which only took 600K. And also to go back to the 80s, we were in the middle of the second artificial intelligence revolution, where we thought artificial intelligence will change everything. And at that time, we could just about simulate a sea slug. There's a cynicism in this book because I've lived through four periods of people saying artificial intelligence is just about to happen. But it was much, much harder than, than we thought. Why do you think so many technological advancements like artificial intelligence have been promised? Cold fusion, hover cars, but never actually been realized? Uh, teleportation. It sounds ridiculous to say, why, why, why can't we teleport? There are loads of things in science fiction that were kind of promised that, of course, haven't materialized because they're, they're not possible. And we kind of forget that we're actually living in a much more limited world now than the one that we thought we would be living in. The 747 airplane, the most common airplane, first took off and was tested in 1968. It's not very modern. And that tube is still the tube that is transporting people around in quite an archaic way around the planet. Not everything is slowing down. Not all innovations are less staggering than we think. But we have a tendency to overplay them. We have an enormous incentive, if you're a business or university, to say, we've just done something absolutely incredible. And there's no incentive to say, actually, compared to what we were doing in this university 40 or 50 years ago, it's not as impressive. Nobody's going to pay you to say that. And now we are in the midst of a global extreme slowdown that has been caused by the global COVID-19 pandemic. In the book, you talk about people choosing rural life to move to quieter ways of living. But yet now we're almost being forced into it in some areas of the world. Did you expect this kind of an event when you were writing the book? No, it's about six years I was writing it seriously from when I started to finish. And the final corrections were in January this year literally days before we even had an inkling that something might be happening. Uh, I have a slight obsession with pandemics, though there are several pandemics and epidemics in the book, but partly to sort of point out that, you know, if you go back to 1665 and go back to the plague or 1492 in the Americas, of course, enormous effects, uh, and in India. But if you look at the ones just within living memory, which are mainly flu, 1918, 1951, 57 and 68, they're blips, absolute blips. The 1918 world GDP fell by 14%, but the next year it rose by 16%. It was as if it had never happened. So the really interesting question about this one is, will it be different? And then this is what we don't know. I can't speculate, except to say this one hit at a time when we were already decelerating. We were already questioning our world, our lives. We, lots of us were fearful about the environment and where we were heading in a different kind of way. We were fearful about the speed. 
uh, and there was already a world recession coming, and then this hit. Whereas those previous four flu pandemics all hit at a time when the trajectory was going forward, and they almost could barely dent it. So that, that's why I think there's a chance that we may not ignore this one in two years from now. I know it sounds ridiculous. Right now you think, how on earth could we return to normal in two years? But we have to be careful. That's what we did every other time. But we'll see. It's an interesting context and it makes people think more about whether the way the world is, is the way the world has to be. If all the data that you present in this book is a clear prediction of what is going to happen as we move into the future, as we do move forward and past this pandemic, are there very big choices that we need to make right now at this moment in time? And is this one of those moments in time where the people need to act and do something? Or is this just humans thinking that we're too important yet again? <laughs> In, in that, will it just work out for itself? Yeah. Will it just work out? I, I always think that you with agency has to be important. You can't just sit back. I, I did a lovely book years and years ago with some friends where we took a series of very big ideas right from the abolition of slavery through to setting up a health centre. And we went back and tried to find the original article, the original published suggestion, not necessarily by the famous person. And what was lovely about that is, of course, Nothing good ever happens unless somebody suggests it. And often they suggested it 30 or 40 years before it was even taken seriously. So the answer is, you can't just sit back, although actually if you do, the world probably won't end. You can't tell if your intervention will be the key intervention. Almost certainly it won't be, but you don't know. I found a statement in your book incredibly interesting that capitalism is transition. Is that implying that the capitalist state that we're in right now and the politics that support it are not the normal state? Yes, that, that's my summary of my conclusion. I feel terrible saying it because there are social scientists who spend their whole lives theorizing about this. And all I do is look at trends and numbers. But capitalism just seems to me inherently unstable. You step back from this and you'll see this is a transition from something it was in terms of Europe, it was feudal to something else, which we don't know what it is. But this turmoil that we've had, where things have changed every generation. It's a change. And we've given it a label because we're impatient and because we only live for 70 or 80 years. We've given it a label as being a steady state because we can't face the idea of living through change. But a bit like calling that agricultural revolution a period, it wasn't. It was a transformation from hunter-gathering to sowing some seeds coming back again. But there was nothing stable about moving from hunter-gathering to farming. Farming is stable. Hunter-gathering is stable. The transition is not stable. So the idea that capitalism is stable, you know, it doesn't make sense to me. We're heading back to a time of stability when it comes to population numbers. And that probably also means stability when it comes to an economic way of behaving, rather than this idea of constantly competing to see who can become the richest. There's nothing stable about that as an idea. Well, reading your book in opposition to the worry and the anxiety and at times turmoil and transition that causes the worry and anxiety that you talk about, I find hope and a message of hope for humanity and our society that was very refreshing. Was that another part of your plan in writing it, this message of hope? It wasn't a plan. It was a, quite a lazy book because I'd done a few books. This was a book that didn't have to be written, but one I began to do out of curiosity. And I wasn't expecting it to be a hopeful book, although I suppose in the back of my mind, because I teach geography students and students from environmental sciences, 
my average student at 21 or 22 does think the world's all going to come to an end. They really do. It's very common that, that students tell me they plan to have no children ever because of their feelings about the future. So, so I suppose I had an inherent implicit bias of if I can possibly give some hope, given who I tend to teach, given that they're worried about the environment and, and climate, I think it makes sense to, to give hope. And there are enough people writing the other books. There are enough. There are lots of those. If you want a book telling you that there aren't enough bees and things won't fertilise or, you know, we're inherently doomed. But we're quite good. The, the only worry about all this is, is that we're, we're a relatively short-lived species. It would be much easier to be a bit more confident about human beings if we had a few more hundred thousand years behind us in terms of evolution. But this idea of thinking of humanity as short-lived when we might want to be around for a long time is going to require a different kind of thinking than so many of us are used to right now. We're used to here and now, results, rewards for us, and not necessarily for thinking generations down the road. Do you have any advice for how to move forward better? It's because that's what we've awarded. There's a lovely quote, I don't think I put it in this book, but I might have done a quote from René Descartes, I think in the 17th century, where he, he was on the dockside in Amsterdam. And Amsterdam is kind of one of the places where the current system began of, of making profit. And he said, all around me is madness. People are only trying to make money. And what I'm trying to say is that's recent. That's a recent obs observation. We've only recently learned a whole set of things. So we really shouldn't be quite so critical about ourselves. Uh, because we, we kind of have this idea that we ought to be superhuman in our abilities rather than just the animal we are. And the other thing to say is there's a lot about generations in this book. We tend to form our views when we are teenagers and young adults. Unless you're very odd, you are not that different in terms of what you believe is right and wrong than the person you were when you were 20. Which means that there's a kind of lag to things changing. So when I was a teenager, my abiding fear was nuclear Armageddon. But then at the end of the 80s and the 90s, we got rid of 90% of them. But it took a long time. And the same with climate change. So people of my generation, we've got used to flying. We've got used to using a car. We might know about climate change, but we don't change our behaviour until we're forced to. However, teenagers, this is the fear they grew up with. This is their equivalent of, of nuclear Armageddon. And so they won't drop it for the rest of their lives. You know, they will quite seriously think that this matters above all else over what should change. And that's why I'm optimistic, is patience, just waiting if you, if you can. That's some really good advice. Thank you. I really appreciate your time. Lovely. Thanks ever so much for your time. And thank you for joining me for this interview with Danny Dorling about his book, Slow Down, The End of the Great Acceleration and Why It's Good for the Planet, the Economy, and Our Lives. I'm Dr. Kiki Sanford, and I hope that you'll join us again next month for a peek between the pages of another science book. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcast. There you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcast. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Kresge with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? 
AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.